Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to another episode of From the Ashes. I'm your host, and I'm sitting here with Bill Sargent. I, when your name came across my desk, I was so excited because the title of your book that we're talking about is Crab Wars, right? A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Bioterrorism, and Human Health. I'm so happy to have you here on the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, so you've been a Nova consultant for the PBS show. Um, you've done, you said, 27 books, which is incredible, on you know nature, technology, ecology. Um, as I was reviewing the notes here, you wrote a book on COVID, uh, the first book to investigate whether COVID came out because of a lab accident, which I hope we can spend some time on later. Is that such like a hot button issue right now? Um, but let's start. Let's start with the horseshoe crabs, and let's start getting to know you. So. Uh, Bill, what got you into uh, this story? Why why were you interested in this? Well, it all came from growing up on Cape Cod as a kid, um, and uh, you know, I, I had a uh, uh, I was sort of brought up as a, as a happy heathen. So I spent all my days. I had a nice little uh, flat bottomed uh, marsh boat that my father had built, and I had a little three out you know three horse outboard motor on it. And I would spend all day just sort of puttering around the bay. And then uh, during the nights, uh, you know, under the full moon and sometimes under the, the new moon high tide, I would paddle out across the bay uh, and there would be absolutely no noise except for the waves lapping up against the shore. And then all of a sudden there'd be these dark figures that would come up out of the out of the water and congregate right at the at the high tide mark uh, and it would be a female horseshoe crab who would start to dig into the sediments and should be surrounded with about 30 or 40 lascivious male horseshoe crabs who were all trying to mate with her and uh, and all you could hear is sort of the quiet crunching and scraping as they as they you know uh, sort of scrambled over each other trying to uh, try the males were trying to be the, the first ones to inseminate the eggs. And it's actually kind of interesting because the males are smaller than the females. And the reason that they're smaller is that that allows them to get under the pile and be the first one to inseminate the, the, the eggs. So there's a there's a, a evolutionary pressure for them to get to stay small. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, did, I didn't know that about horseshoe crabs. Um, so you're there late, you know, overnight, looking at these crabs, what, what inspired you to study them? Just well, how weird they one are? of the things is <laughs> <laughs> partly that, but it, for me, it always gave me an incredible sort of sense of creation because this has been going on for 450 million years. So way before there were birds, fish, mammals, any of the animals that we're used to, uh, horseshoe crabs were, were coming up uh, and, and, and laying their eggs. So way, way before the dinosaurs, uh, you know, they, they were virtually the only things on land at that time were little tiny mosses and ferns 
and a few insects like dragonflies with about a three foot long uh, wingspan. Oh yes, they truly are an ancient creature. This was this was uh, way way before Jurassic Park. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's fascinating. (laughs) So you mentioned as we were talking before that horseshoe crab. There's some um, compound which you can certainly go into that's used in a lot of medicine. Can you say more about that? Yes, basically anything that's going to come in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a vaccine or an antibody test uh, or a syringe, they all have to be tested to make sure they're free of what are called gram-negative bacteria. And the way they do that is through using horseshoe crab blood. So a a quart of horseshoe crab, processed horseshoe crab blood is worth about $1,500. So basically they're the most valuable uh, marine animal that 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 uh, that we have. Uh, I always say in this area, um, I'm on the east coast. Yeah, that's that's so wild. I did not know that there's like a horseshoe crab market. How is that stuff extracted or harvested? Is it is it farmed? How's that all happen? Um, ba- basically, what you do is you go out and you capture them in the wild, and that's very easy to do, uh, particularly on Pleasant Bay, where they've been doing this for the past almost 50 years. Uh, you just drift around in a boat and you reach down with a net or a clam rake and very gently pick them up and um, you know put them on the on the bottom of your boat, uh, and then. Uh, and then they'll be trucked to the laboratory where they're bled, and then uh, and then you return them back to the wild. And theoretically, you should have no mortality. Uh, but under industrial conditions, the truck doesn't show up, and the crabs are left out in the sun, and you might get up to 50% mortality. Oh, rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when yeah. you were researching this book, did you ride along, or, or how did you learn about this type of thing? Well, I actually, um, right after college, I, I set up a marine biology laboratory on the bay, and uh, we had funding from the Office of Gifted and Talented, and we had kids from coming out from all over the country uh, that would spend the summer on the Cape, uh, and we were just trying to find out the basic ecology of the, of the bay, what the animals were, and how they interacted, that sort of thing. And pretty soon, well, we saw people collecting the horseshoe crabs. Um, and we talked to them and they were from the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole at the time. And, um, uh, and finally, you know, we, we uh, sort of negotiated with them and we came, we had a contract so that we would uh, collect the crabs and then monitor how well they recovered from the, uh, from the bleeding operation. So it was actually, uh, I didn't realize it at the time, uh, but there are very few laboratories that that have a contract like that that gives them a, a you know a reliable source of income rather than having to constantly be you know applying for grants. Um, so it was a it was a it was a particularly good uh, situation. That's really good. Yeah, you don't. I know I've interviewed so many academics and know a fair amount here in Boulder, and that grant process is such a pain. It sounds like you really found it's a awful. way to fund the lab. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't didn't realize it at the time how how, how easy I had it. <laughs> right, how, how lucky that was, and to work with industry in that way too, right? It sounds like to help reduce some of that mortality rate uh, that was going on with those with those horseshoe crabs. Um, yeah. Okay. So so why crab wars? Right. Where does the conflict come into this story? Well, what what we found is that um, 
basically the, the industry was cutting a lot of corners and they, they weren't treating their animals uh, as, as well as they should have been. Uh, and, um, uh, and again, you know, because we were doing this, this, uh, this research, we were also able to sort of get our nose under the tent and, and see what was going on. Uh, and um, uh, so we, you know, and then we went through um, several disputes actually. Uh, and it, everything came to a head in the year 2000 and there was a federal court case because the Cape Cod National Seashore all of a sudden realized that people had been collecting horseshoe crabs in the in the waters of the of the national seashore for the last 20 years which is illegal uh, and they were very embarrassed about that that they <laughs> that they didn't know that it had been going on so they reapplied the ban and then the company uh, sued the department of interior uh, so that um, because they wanted to get that jurisdiction changed to the state and um, and basically, uh, a number of people, uh, a number of groups, did studies to find out how many how many horseshoe crabs there were on the bay. And there was one they they raised about sixty thousand dollars, and they counted. They said there were about a million adult horseshoe crabs in the bay. And I knew that was totally Meshugana. Um, Just if you were you know familiar with the bay, you knew when they were mating. You know, if there were millions of crabs in the bay, you'd see hundreds of thousands up on the on the shore, and we were only seeing you know hundreds at the most. Uh, anyway, so they did a study. The Cape Cod National Seashore did a study, uh, and they tagged the crabs, and they found that basically what the horseshoe crabs do is you collect them in the shallow waters, you bleed them, and then you return them to the deep waters. Uh, um, so, and it takes them about 30 days to get back to the shallow waters. And so, uh, and, and in, you know, naturally they're constantly migrating back and forth across the bay. So what the first group had done is they had counted them once when they went, you know, in, in, uh, in June, they counted them when they went to the east and then they counted in July when they went to the west and then they counted in August when they went back to the east and then in September when they went back the other direction. So they got about four times as many crabs as were actually in there. And finally, um, I, I turned to my friend, uh, George Buckley, who teaches at Harvard, uh, and he had had, uh, he would take students down every, every summer and count the number of, of molts of horseshoe crabs. And he kept telling me that, you know, Bill, the, 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 the population of horseshoe crabs is crashing. We're not seeing any of the little year old uh, molts. But I said, George, you know, you look around the bay and absolutely full of, of large, uh, you know, female um, crabs. And we argued back and forth. And I, I told him his field technique was no good. And he told me my writing was no good. And we went back and forth. And finally, we said, well, let's really try to figure this out. So we each took 20 bucks out of our back pockets and uh, decided that, that we would publish all this data that we had over the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that that was really that paper was what decided the federal court case. Uh, and and it, went, it went in favor of the Cape Cod National Seashore. And so what that, and then uh, what was interesting is the very next year, and we didn't expect this, we went from 
when George uh, would 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 take his students along the, the the rack line of the bay, he'd walk around along about a hundred uh, meter transect, just simply counting the number of horseshoe crab uh, shells. And you know, when earlier on, I remember you'd get you know two or three hundred uh, of the crabs. And then when he was concerned, you were only getting, you know, two or three crabs. After uh, the ban was reestablished, the very next summer, you were getting back to two or three hundred of these shells. Hmm. So the the population was bouncing back much faster than than, you know, we had thought that it was going to. Uh, So it so it worked much better than than we actually uh, had hoped. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. I mean, that sounds like you really did a great thing for your local environment. And I, you know, on the show, we talk a lot about the emotional side of things. And I'm just, I'm kind of blown away by spending that amount of time really embedded in an environment. It sounds like you really got to know the bay and got to know this really specific niche of it. What was that like? Uh, Yes. Um, Well, it was, it was sort of a passion, uh, you know, and it was something that, that I'd grown up with you know, ever since I was, um, you know, probably about uh, six or seven years old, and I'd just be let loose on the bay, you know, every day all summer, and I'd, I'd tool around the bay and, and get to know all the animals, and then we developed the laboratory and, and became a little bit more, uh, more scientific about it. It was during that time, actually, um, I was, we had a, a large rain barrel um, that we used uh, for testing outboard motors. And I was fiddling around with that. Um, and that night I went to sleep and I, you know, I spiked a very, very, a very, very high fever. Uh, and, uh, and then I actually went into a coma. I was getting sick to my stomach wow. and I went into yeah. a coma and uh, my parents uh, brought me up to the, you know, the Cape Cod hospital. And my doctor came in and he came to my parents with tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm, there's nothing I can do. I'm afraid you should transfer him up to the Boston Children's Hospital. And so I went up there and I had this wonderful nurse that stayed up with me all night. And then in the morning, uh, my mother came in and, and she said, Mrs. Sargent, uh, your son is all right. He, he's out of his coma, but I'm afraid there's been some some um, brain damage. Uh, he's talking this nonsense about horseshoe crabs, uh, you, you know, insects and horseshoe crabs and worms. And my mother said, "Oh, that's all right. All he ever does is talk about, you know." That's how you that you were uh, okay. <laughs> so I was as good as I was ever going to get. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I love that idea of, of just really yeah, digging into a place and studying it at that level. Um, can you say a little bit more about your love for ecology or your love for nature? Because, I mean, that is the, that's the theme across all of your books, right? It's, it's really anchored around that. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, uh, the late E.O. Wilson, uh, who died just a, about a month ago, uh, he was um, a, a Harvard uh, biologist, and he came up with the term biophilia. And, um, and he said that this is basically one of the intelligences. Uh, so you have emotional intelligence, you have academic intelligence, and you know these different kinds of intelligence. And one of those, he said, is, is biophilia. So it's a, a love of biology, a love of the environment. 
uh, and uh, and it's it's sort of a genetic thing. Um, so you know, I, I I grew up that way. I had that love. It was actually difficult for me in college uh, because you know I I, I was in the uh, I was in the biology department, but in the biology department at Harvard, you're surrounded with all these very competitive pre med guys, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who are yeah. <laughs> who are who are grinding out for the grades, and uh, and it, it was um, uh, that wasn't me. It, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't the kind of biology I wanted to do. They were looking at at microbiology, you know, getting down to the level of cells. I wanted to deal with whole animals. And uh, so finally, actually, I, I took a year off. I went on a on an oceanographic cruise to Africa and South America and up into the Baltic. Uh, and when I came back, I switched it. I switched to biological anthropology, and that allowed me to take all the biology courses that I wanted to take. And I didn't have to do organic chemistry and calculus and and all these uh, sort of grind courses. Yeah, that's a wonderful story. And I think it just, it speaks to finding your niche in the world, right? Finding like exactly what what works for you. Um, I, I've never heard biophilia before. I mean, it makes sense from the taxonomy of it. Would, would you say someone that's like a, you know, a dog whisperer or a horse whisperer, would they be rated high on the biophilia scale? People that have like a natural city for animals and, and, and things like that. It, absolutely. And the, the interesting thing is, I also think that a lot of people who have biophilia also uh, like to write. And I think there may be a connection between the two. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So we're going to move into our first commercial break. When we get back, I want to hear more about that, more about, you know, ecology and nature, more about the horseshoe crab, some of this COVID situation. There's a lot that I think we can talk about. So if you're uh, listening, tune in, um, hang on, and we'll catch you on the other side of the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable, dot com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. 
Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back. I'm sitting here with Bill Sargent, and we're talking science, we're talking crabs, we're talking ecology. Um, so... Something that really stood out is that you also researched COVID. Um, one of the books that you wrote was called Terror by Error, The COVID Chronicles, which was one of the first, if not the first book, right, to talk about if COVID came about because of a lab accident. Uh, that's really fascinating to me. Is that something that, you know, has been talked about, but hasn't really been declared one way or another? Um, for, the, for the listeners out there, can you talk a little bit about that theory, about what you found in your research and kind of what your conclusions were? Well, um, I, I approached it from kind of a different angle. Uh, I, had, I had just finished a manuscript about tick-borne diseases. And, um, and a lot of people, a lot of people in, the, in the health industry think that a lot of the uh, tick-borne diseases like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever and Lyme disease and babesiosis um, actually came because uh, you know, during the 60s, particularly, um, the United States had a biological warfare uh, program. Mm -hmm. And what they were doing is that they were actually actually putting some of these bacteria and viruses into ticks. Uh, and then they would and then they would use them as a biological weapon. There was one instance where there was a, um, a young CIA recruit and um, they simply told him to appear at a, at a certain airport. Uh, they didn't tell him what he was going to do. And he appeared at the airport and got on this little plane and they flew at night out over the Caribbean. And when they got out over Cuba, and this was right before the Cuban Missile, Missile Crisis. And uh, when they flew over the island, they told him, OK, now open up the boxes in front of you and dump the contents out the door. And he opened up these boxes and they were teeming with hundreds and thousands of ticks. And uh, so he, I can't tell you what he said when he opened it up and saw them, but he dumped them out the door. And then a week later, his son got very, very sick. He spiked 105 degree temperature, was hospitalized. 
and afterwards the recruit went to his commanding officer and he said, was there any connection between what we were doing that night and my son getting sick? And the commanding officer said, I, I can't give you any details. All I can tell you is burn all the clothes you were wearing that night. Uh, oh. And there were, there were several other instances like that. And a lot of this research was done at the uh, um, Animal Research Center uh, right in, in uh, Long Island Sound, right opposite Lyme, Connecticut. And, you know, whenever you had uh, a storm come through, they would lose electricity and you would lose security in these laboratories. Um, th these were these were like the, you know, level four biocontainment facilities and you had to have air pressure uh, to keep the to keep the, um, the, the, you know, the agents in. And if you lost electricity, you lost that. Uh, and all of a sudden, all the freezers started to to melt. And, you know, all of the, the viruses and bacteria started to become active. Um, and they figured that what happened at that time is that some of these ticks, and they had hundreds of thousands of them in the laboratory, uh, got out. And, and then they were picked up by shorebirds and, and distributed up and, down, up and down the East Coast. So anyway, when I heard that, the, um, that there was this new uh, coronavirus in, in Wuhan, uh, China. And I realized that the research was being done in a bio four, uh, in a level four biocontainment facility. I said, wow, you know, that could be the same story. And, uh, so I, you know, I, and I haven't found anything, uh, that's convinced me otherwise. Uh, you know, I, I gave equal credence to the idea that it could come from nature, but I think uh, to me, the, the circumstantial evidence of, you know, all of a sudden having this disease, and you know, you don't find this disease anywhere near the laboratory. The nearest place where they were finding it was a thousand miles away. Uh, so that would be like, uh, you know, a, a disease showing up near a laboratory in Boston, where we actually have a level four biocontainment facility uh, that you only find in Florida. And it turns out that, that scientists were working on that. And you would think, you know, wow, it's much more likely that, it, that there was a mistake in the, in the lab uh, that allowed this to get out than that somehow, you know, that, that uh, uh, virus worked its way all the way up to, up to, up to Boston. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and I wonder, well, so let's take a step back. I've heard of the Lyme disease thing being a bioweapon. Um, I didn't right. know if that was confirmed or not, but I've certainly heard that that theory. It sounds like you got some information that shows like that is kind of what happened. Um, and I, I hadn't heard the, the story of the the tick bombing of Cuba, but uh, but I think the same question with that and with the coronavirus thing is: wouldn't that be a war crime, or wouldn't that be something? I mean, that's a huge deal, right? To to use biological weapons in that way. I mean, I'm not an expert, but that's Absolutely. that's against a lot of stuff, right? I mean, that's like anti-Geneva Convention, anti-UN. I mean, that's a huge deal if that were the case. Yeah, and that's why it was done covertly by the by the CIA. It wasn't done by the you know the U.S. Army, for instance. Mm -hmm. I I I think the interesting thing about that now is, and this has just come up within within this last week, they are finding um, that. That particularly white-tailed deer, and we have about uh, 30 million white-tailed 
white-tailed deer, I'm going to just call them deer from now on, uh, all through the United States. And uh, the Department of Agriculture has been testing them, and they're finding that very high numbers uh, of, the, of the deer um, are infected uh, with COVID. Uh, the different the, and they have all the different uh, uh, varieties that that that, that we've found. Um, but you're in some, you know, in states like Michigan, you're getting 60% of the samples that they tested uh, were tested positive for COVID. And the question is, how did COVID get from humans into deer? Uh, and um, there's also a, a, a study that just came out uh, from China, and they believe that um, that the Omicron uh, variant uh, came about because of of uh, mice. In other words, the mice were the uh, what are what are called the amplifying organisms, where the where the where the viruses mutate within that organism, uh, and they become more contagious. Uh, and then they and then they spread out from there. So I think what what uh, what is possible is that you know you have in the in the winter ticks will come into the house. Uh, they'll come in contact with humans that have COVID, and then in the summer they go back out into the fields, uh, and then they can um, the, the ticks can pass that virus uh, you know to the mice. And uh, and then and then there'll be and then there'll be other ticks that that will attach to the deer. And if you're familiar with deer, they have hundreds and hundreds of ticks on them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that could be the pathway of getting the covid from humans to deer. And so now we have, you know, millions of deer that have the covid virus and they could be the reservoir species uh, that. Um, that the that the virus is going to mutate in, uh, and you could have a new uh, have a new pandemic. God, that's frightening. That's frightening. I mean, what do you even <laughs> What do you even do with that? Right? Like, how do you how do you stop that? Right? It's like this is ecology run wild. You know. Well, and and there's probably very little ways uh, to yeah. stop it, and and we don't know. I mean, you know, you could have a new outbreak. Um, you know, next year. Or it could lie dormant for the next fifty years or the next hundred years. Mm -hmm. uh, it just really all depends on on you know how the how the viruses mutate uh, and and what happens in nature. And but I think it's very unsettling for for humans to think of this going on, you know, outside of their control. Um, uh, I've I've been talking to you know, a lot of doctors and they make the point that, you know, handling the pandemic really, you know, depends on what humans do. You know, if we go get vaccinated and wear our masks and everything like that. Uh, but I think um, there's this other whole aspect of what, what, the, what the viruses do in nature that is equally as important as what, as what humans do. Yeah, let me ask you a question as an ecologist, right? I think, you know, there's that argument or that point of view that pandemics are natural, right? They're ways that they sweep through animal species all the time. Um, and humans, of course, don't love that idea because it means that we we uh -huh. die, right? I mean, you lose part of the animal population. Um, from your experience, how 
how do I say it's like maybe how natural is COVID or how expected was it? What what role do you well, think it's playing th- in our in our development as a species, right? From that I, level. I think what happens, and, and you see this in lots of different species, when you have an overabundance of species, uh, we have another inst I mean, that's that's true now with deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, you know. 10 times, 100, probably 100 times more deer now than, than we did a couple hundred years ago. And that's because we got rid of the, of the wolves, which are the right. apex uh, predators. And, uh, and it's also because of, of climate change, because now the deer can move up. They're moving up into the boreal uh, forests uh, and, um, and they can survive the winters up there. And uh, there's less snow, so they're less likely to be attacked by coyotes. Uh, coyotes are, are becoming the, their new prime uh, predator. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we have another situation like that with seals. Uh, you know, on the East Coast, uh, seals are overabundant. And because seals are overabundant, uh, uh, you're getting great white sharks that are now overabundant because they're the predator on them. And this came about because we we stopped having bounties on on seals. So whenever humans start, you know, fiddling around with nature like that, you have a lot of unintended consequences. And what happens when you get a species that's overabundant like that, uh, you will get um, some kind of virus uh, that will attack that species and bring the numbers way down. And you can see this with rabbits, you can see it with locusts, you can see it with all kinds of, of different animals. Uh, and you know, and now we seem to be seeing it with humans. Uh, so we, we just have to be very, very careful with what we do with our, it, it's the only biosphere that we have. So we got to treat it very well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so sensitive. I'm sure you know more stories. The one that comes to mind is that is the cane toad story, right? Of introducing that, which ends up killing the dogs where they have to do the cane beetle. And it's a whole situation. Um, I think it's down in Australia that they're still dealing right. with, right? It's now there's these toads everywhere that are poisonous and are, you know, killing people's pets. Um, yeah. It's yeah. like, you really can't mess with these systems because they're so complex, right? And everything yeah. is connected. Yeah. Yeah, and and of course that's a perfect example of an invasive species, and we have lots of other invasive invasive species. Uh, you know, you can think right away of, of rabbits. You know, have run wild in in Australia because they were invasive, and you know we have the Dutch elm disease and all kinds of things that people are familiar with uh, in this country. Yeah, I mean here in Colorado, we just went through like a pine beetle epidemic that was killing all of our trees. Okay. And now we're paying for it because for the past couple of years, our fires have been really bad because now there's dead trees everywhere that are going to burn. And it's just this kind of nonstop um, kind of snowball of ecological instability. Or I guess, actually, I guess I would ask you that, that question, is this instability or is this natural? Because it, it feels crazy, but on a greater time scale, you know, is it, is this how just would the world well, works? I don't know. <laughs> Well, you know that the, um, people often like to talk about what they call the balance of nature, and actually, that's a misnomer because nature is really never in balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you constantly have you know some disease, some organisms that are that are overabundant, and others that are you know underabundant. Uh, and then what happens is you know that's where the viruses step in. 
uh, and they cut down those over uh, overabundant species. So, you know, really what you want to have happen with your bark beetles is that some kind of bacteria or virus, you know, starts attacking them and brings their, their population down. And it wouldn't surprise me that, uh, that that starts happening, um, you know, in the next few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think that it's, so what I'm hearing right is that it's swingy, right? Do you feel like it's getting more swingy as, you know, we look at climate change and human intervention, or has it always been kind of this level of swinginess? No, I think, I think I like, I like that term. Uh, I think, uh, no, I, I think there, we are seeing greater swingingness, <laughs> uh, and partially it's being driven by, by climate change, which is putting, putting everything off balance again. Uh, and plus all the things that we're doing, like introducing invasive species. Uh, so we are seeing, you know, we are seeing these swings, uh, and, uh, and they're, and they're becoming more apparent and, and more serious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What do you recommend be done or what actions be taken? Uh, take fewer actions. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Just let it play out. Trust Mother Nature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, think, I, I think what we have to do is stop our, our tendency to... Uh, basically, what we're trying to do is engineer our planet for a single species, namely ourselves. Mm. And that's not going to work. Ultimately, you know, we should be trying to protect the whole biosphere. Even some of those things that we that we, that we find noxious to us uh, are are important in in some particular way. Uh, so I think we should just be very very careful about tampering with nature. The, the whole reason that this pandemic came about, either it came about because of a lab accident or it came about because humans were getting too close to the uh, to nature, too close to the bats uh, that harbored the, the COVID viruses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. We're going to move into our final commercial break here. When we get back, I want to hear more about this, more about ecology. We'll loop back around on the crabs. And it's been really fascinating so far. I feel like I've learned a lot during this interview. So I really appreciate you, you taking the time. Um, those listeners out there, we'll catch you on, on the other side of the break. Take care. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. 
This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So in this final segment, we like to talk directly to listeners um, about they relate to the story, what steps that they can take. And I think you've done a fantastic job of kind of outlining some of the ecological issues that were faced, right, as, as a planet. So I'm wondering if you could tell them, yeah, where can they go to get educated? Um, what steps they might be able to take in their own personal lives? Uh, what's, what's effective for learning more about and, and protecting the whole biosphere, as, as you put it? Well, I, I think what people can do individually, particularly younger people, is you know get, get into the get into the best college that you can, and uh, and and concentrate uh, you know in one of the one of the areas that uh, that makes the most sense, whether it's biology or geology uh, or sustainability. They have all kinds of of new. Uh, majors now that they didn't have when I was when I was in college, and then and then what you want to do is find your niche. Uh, we were talking earlier that I was originally in biology, and it was overpopulated with pre med guys, <laughs> and so I switched to biological anthropology, and um, it was a much smaller department. I could take the courses that I wanted to take. And, and I sort of was able to figure out the ropes and was able to get grants. And uh, I spent a couple summers studying monkeys on a little island off of Puerto Rico. Uh, and, that, and that was very important later on when I was doing 
you know, basic ecology uh, on, on Cape Cod, um, looking at the marine animals, because they used actually some of the same techniques that I had been using for looking at the behavior of monkeys. I would look at, at fish and crabs, and I would get them to know them as individuals. Uh, we had a little creek behind our house, and I would spend hours sitting on the, on the little lab over the, over the creek, and I would feed the uh, I, I would feed you know the crabs and various things there, and I would get to know them. I would know you know which ones were the most aggressive, which ones were submissive, what the dominance hierarchy was, uh, and just a, a basic and and you'll find very quickly that that you know even animals that you wouldn't expect to have personalities have very very distinct personalities. I think that's really cool, right? It's like this idea of paying enough attention and those details emerge. You know, one of my backgrounds is in Buddhism and that's a big part of that whole idea set, right? Is that there is wonder everywhere, but you have to just look for it, you know? And and there's something so romantic about just sitting on the creek watching these crabs and starting to connect with them, right? Something that I think most people might just pass by and be like, oh yeah, that's like a weird looking animal right on their way to the beach. Like you really took the time to get to know them and know their little, you know, their quirks and their little, you know, their society in a way, yeah. you know? I, I, I also should mention that one of the great traumas of my, of my childhood is that uh, my older sister brought some friends down. They were, you know, teenagers uh, and they wanted to catch uh, some blue crabs. And so I, you know, I, I showed them the creek and, uh, you know, and I, I thought, well, okay, you know, they'll catch one or two crabs and that'll be okay. The creek will recover and they'll be replaced. And and uh, instead, these guys went, you know, just kind of, you know, arm in arm down the whole creek, just killing every crab they could. They'd catch them and smash them on the side and everything oh like that. God, and uh, I, you know, it was devastating because yeah. these were my friends. This is, yeah, this you is know? your little community, right? I mean, these were your pets in a way, <laughs> no, right? Think, yeah, exactly. I knew them better than the rest of my family. Yeah, <laughs> and oh. and uh, uh, so it was, and actually, it was right after that that I got very, very sick. Uh, oh. So that that was that was sort of my my first uh, traumatic lesson in conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some good organizations that people could um, learn from that they can donate to, they can get involved with, you know, especially if they're maybe a little bit older, have more means, they can't, but they can't quite go back to college. How can they help with the conservation effort? Well, there's certainly all the big ones. There's the National Audubon Society, uh, the Sierra Club, uh, Friends of the Earth. Uh, a lot of these actually... Uh, got started in Colorado and mm-hmm. even specifically in, in Boulder. Uh, and it, an interesting thing is that um, uh, David Brower, who was very active first in the Sierra Club and then set up Friends of the Earth, uh, he had been in the uh, the 10th, um, what I really call it, uh, the, the, uh, it was the ski troops. And my father had also been in the ski troops and they knew each other. And a lot of the early environmentalists, the early conservationists, all had been in the Tenth Mountain, yeah. uh, and they knew each other. And they were the people that that set up the 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 uh, you know the ski areas in Vail and and um, Aspen and uh, all of these things. Uh, and that was really the beginning of our 
of our environmental movement at that time. And that's all the environmental reg regulations that we have now go back to the early 70s when, when they were instituted. And it was, it was these group of people um, that knew each other. Um, it didn't matter if they were Republicans or Democrats or scientists or, or, or lawyers. Uh, they all were able to work together and, and craft these uh, pieces of legislation. The very different era than what we're in now. <laughs> right. I know. That's just that, exactly what I was thinking. I was like, we need that now. We need like a coalition yep. and a unified voice around a lot of these things. Um, yeah, the, the 10th Mountain Division is really cool. I, I um, In Colorado, they have these huts that they built when they were training that you can now rent and right. you can snowshoe and Nordic ski through them. Um, and that's like just such yep. a wonderful experience because, you, and you can tell, right, that these routes were were drawn and kind of, you know, trailblazed by individuals that love nature, right? They're not the most efficient routes, yep. but they are incredibly beautiful. And that is, that's pretty right. cool to be able to, to do that. Yep. Um, and my father also told me stories about when they were on leave, uh, they would rappel down the side of the of the main hotel in in Boulder and particularly in Denver. I think it was the Brown Hotel, mm -hmm. something like that. So you'd have all these sort of wild young guys, uh, you know, that were coming in off the mountains and rappelling down the side of the hotel. <laughs> right, that's what, they, that's what they do for fun. Yeah, it's it's a yeah. different time, and and I think we need another dose of that. Um, yeah, I guess from the political angle, what do you see as the like obstacles to conservation? Because I think you're right. I mean, at least my understanding, I mean, I'm, I'm younger, so I wasn't around. But my understanding is that 60s and 70s, it was top of mind. It was always being spoken about. It was something that was in kind of the zeitgeist. Now it seems to take almost like a dystopian turn where many of, I think, my generation is like, yeah, you know, we're, we're screwed. There's like no way out of this. We're going to be fighting over water in the next 10 years and like rationing out oxygen, you know. Um, what do you, what happened there? Uh, well, the, the interesting thing, you're absolutely right. It was, it was the zeitgeist of the time. Uh, and actually all of these environmental regulations, the, the uh, Endangered Species Act and uh, the EPA, they all were uh, promulgated under President Nixon, mm -hmm. not because he was a particular friend of the environment, but he needed, you know, he knew he was in trouble because of Vietnam and he needed some political capital. And so he figured the way to do that was to, uh, uh, you know, pass a lot of environmental, uh, you know, regulations. And um, uh, it was just a, it was just a, you know, it was the time to do that. Uh, and people were who people were interested in it. Uh, yeah, that's that's kind of fallen apart. Now, um, I'm still I'm skeptical, actually, that we can that we can get out of this by industrialization, which is essentially what we're talking about. Uh, and people aren't talking about real sacrifice. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. they want to say, well, well, you know, we'll change from driving our cars with gas to driving with electricities, but we'll still have these, you know, nice, fast, zippy cars, and we won't have to change our, our lifestyles very much. Um, I think uh, I, I think it's a, a much more basic problem than that. And we really have to change our lifestyles. We have to eat differently. Uh, we have to have fewer kids. We have to drive less. Uh, maybe we even work less, uh, and we have to make all these 
really major uh, changes if if we if we can possibly save the, the 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 biosphere. And there's no guarantees that we can. You know, maybe this is cooked into our into our genes uh, that um, you know we just keep on you know using using up our environment. And I, I don't. Uh, I, I call it the the Star Trek fantasy uh, that that Elon Musk have that you know you can have people you know fly off and and establish new colonies on on different planets. Uh, I don't think a species can live without its own uh, without its own biosphere. Uh, yeah, you might be able to support people for thirty years flying around on a on a spaceship, but much beyond that, you know, they're going to run out of things and and you know, poof, that's the end of the, of the human species. Uh, but there are other species, you know, if we do, if we do destroy the earth, uh, there are, the earth itself will, will still be there. And there are other species, uh, hopefully that won't evolve to, uh, uh, to destroy their biosphere. Uh, and, and they will, and, it will be a very different planet uh, with, a, with a different constellation of, of species. And of course, this has happened before. You know, we know, you know what the planet was like when there were dinosaurs, and we know what it was like way before that when you only had things like horseshoe crabs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I guess is, if there's some silver lining, it's that, right, life will endure. It might not look like us, but life will still be here in some form. Um, as we're wrapping up, I'm just curious, who are you betting on? What, what life form do you think will, uh, will inherit the earth if humans kind of muck it up? Um, I, I've, I've heard a couple <laughs> I've heard a couple of votes. Um, I think, I think I'm on team jellyfish. Um, I've heard that, that, that jellyfish might be the one to take it over. Um, what do you think? Well, I, I, I would have to go with horseshoe crabs. I mean, you know, they've survived for 450 million years. I'm sure they can make it for a few more million years. Um, I, I would be very careful of things like kangaroos, you know, because they they stand up on their hind legs and they have those front, you know, hands. Oh, yeah, they're that very they crafty. Use for boxing. Yeah. yeah. We, you want to stay away from them. They're yeah. they're getting a little too human like. A little too human like. Or <laughs> octopus. Octopus are really smart, right? That's like that's a whole other creepy thing going on with them. Um, <laughs> But anyway, we yeah. got to start to wrap up here. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Um, in our last couple of minutes here, can you say to people where they can find you, um, the title of the book again, and if they want more information about you? Uh, yes, you can uh, You can find me at, at uh, williamsargent.net. And um, my present book is, um, is Crab Wars, A Tale of Horseshoe Crabs, Bioterrorism, and Human Health. Uh, I have a, the other book that, that we were talking about earlier uh, was called, um, uh, I'm blanking on it now. Uh, uh, terror by <laughs> error. Terror by error, question mark. And it's very important that you have that question mark uh, because I, I, I didn't get uh, overly involved with the argument of, you know, the origins itself. What I came down on really is, you have to be very, very careful about doing what's called gain of function research. And we don't have enough time to go into that. <laughs> Maybe on a future episode. But thank you so much for joining us. Yes. It's been great. I feel like I've had a great time, learned a lot during this episode. Um, so for those listeners out there, if you like what you're hearing, definitely like us on social media, share the post with someone that you think would you know benefit from us, give us five-star reviews because you know we deserve it. And we'll catch you on the other side. Catch you next week for another episode of From the Ashes. Take care. 
Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.